What is good, everybody? Welcome to the podcast. I am so glad that y'all are hanging out with me for a little bit today. I am excited to get into this one. If you already looked at the title, you see that we're going to be covering a few topics, not super in-depth, because those those deserve completely separate episodes, but we're going to be touching on a few touchy top topics. Women in ministry, tithing. Are you supposed to tithe 10%? Are you supposed to tithe more? Uh, are we even commanded to tithe? We're going to be talking a little bit about that. And then also we're going to be looking at reading the Bible in context. So I just want to warn you that the next few episodes, going through the rest of chapter 15 and going through the rest of chapter 16, may sound a little bit different. And that's a good thing. Because what these chapters allow us to really focus on is we get a front row seat into the contextual background and the reality that these writings that are in all of our Bibles, that, that these writings truly are, are letters. And they're not just letters, but it's mail. We are reading someone else's mail. The letter to the Romans, the Corinthians, Galatians, so on and so forth. Paul, when he wrote these, was writing it to a specific people at a specific time. And we are opening up his mail and we're reading it and trying to dissect it and trying to understand it. And oftentimes, this paradigm shift can be hard for us to come to grips with and to fully understand. And I think one reason why is that we, we know that all scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God. And Paul even tells Timothy in one of his letters in the mail that we snatched up and put in our Bibles is that all of God's word can be used for instruction. He says this in 2 Timothy 3.16. And because we know that the scripture is God-breathed and all of it can be used for instruction, we then make the leap to assume that the Bible was written to us. And for many of us, it may be a shock to learn that the Bible wasn't written to us. Let me explain. There, there is a phrase that is gaining more popularity recently. I mean, as far as I can tell, it seems popular more now than it did a while back. But it's the phrase that the Bible isn't written to you, but is written for you. And what this saying does is it points out that although Scripture is inspired, it's God-breathed, it does not mean that the authors, the human authors, had no hand in who these words were written to, how they were written, and that they had a hand in the way the message was crafted. And when we understand that, yes, the Bible is God's Word, but it's God's Word through the lens, understanding, and mouth of human beings, God's chosen people. When we understand that the word is written by human authors, we, we come to learn that the human authors of the Bible did not necessarily have people that lived 2,000 years down the road on the other side of the world that was not yet discovered in mind when they were writing the scripture. What they were doing is they were writing God's word to the people of that time. 
And I think that this can be forgotten because a lot of us come to the Bible thinking that the Bible is about us when really it's about Jesus. And it's about how God is working throughout human history and creation to bring about his ultimate ends. And when we come to the Bible thinking that it's supposed to answer all of our questions and it's supposed to relate to all of our issues that we are facing in our culture, in our society, in our time, we can forget that the Bible was also written for the people that it was originally written to. God is sovereign enough and loving enough that when he gave his word to the human authors and they gave it to the people who needed it, he was loving enough to make the word as such that they could understand it and it could be useful for them. So when we're looking at something like the the letter to the Roman people, although there's many things that we can glean from it and learn from it and apply from it, we have to understand too that this letter was written to a specific group of people who had specific problems, and Paul was addressing those specific problems to uplift them. And if there's something that we can glean from that, then that's absolutely awesome. But if we're not careful, we can fall into this trap, especially when we get to weird parts of the Bible that we don't understand. We can accuse the Bible of being morally wrong and violating our modern culture our modern morality, our societal norms, if we expect it to be curated to our current culture in the way that we currently do things. And one common instance of this misuse of the Bible and misunderstanding is when we read the law, when you read through the Torah. When you read through all the 613 laws in the Torah and you read about the way that they were supposed to treat their slaves, and how they were supposed to deal people who were caught in adultery, <clears throat> kill them. Uh, and when you read about how they were to handle sacrifices, those things turn off so many modern readers today because we think that the Torah was written to us when really it was written to an ancient people. And God was working through those ancient people and their faults. And when we do this, we can fall into this trap of picking and choosing what parts of the Bible we want to ignore or what parts of the Bible we want to implement based off of how it aligns with our cultural constructs. And when we do that, we're using the Bible in a way that it was never designed to be used. And this is very common. The the first thing that pops into my mind uh, with how the Bible can be incorrectly applied or inconsistently applied, rather, Uh, is when we're talking about tithing, especially tithing of 10%, for example. I really should do an episode on tithing because I'm not going to be able to really do a deep dive, but I'm, I'm, I'm wanting us to see how understanding the cultural context should inform, at the very least, how we approach the Bible and its various commandments to people groups that we are not a part of. But I really should do an episode on this because the New Testament does not give any commands that state that Christians have to give 10% of the first fruits of their income to the church. But this is something that is pervasive in so many modern churches. All the churches that I have gone to, at least in the southern Oklahoma, Texas area, they have all preached that the Bible commands that 
Christians give 10% of their income and that when they do, they will always be blessed. And if they don't give 10%, then maybe that's why they're struggling financially. And I visited a church recently. And my first time there, uh, the pastor was preaching about tithing 10%. And he was adamant that this was a biblical command for Christians today. And what's unfortunate is that all of his proof texts, to, to prove his point, they all came from the Old Testament laws. And as you may know, Christians are no longer bound by these laws. It doesn't mean we can't glean principles from them and understand uh, how God works at certain points in time and God's character because it's always consistent, but we're no longer bound to these laws. And one law that he pointed out, and this was a big crux of his entire argument, was in Leviticus chapter 23, specifically in verse 10. It says this, it says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. So on the surface, this seems quite clear that we are to give our first fruits. Like when we get our income, when we get anything, we're supposed to give the first fruits of that to God. And then it comes to the question of, well, how much? And he used other texts within the Old Testament to support his claim that it has to be at least 10%. And the one he would point to was Abraham and Melchizedek and how uh, Abraham gave a tenth of his things to Melchizedek. However, though, the problem with using something like Leviticus as a proof text to something that we're supposed to be doing today as Christians is that it seems to assume that Leviticus was written to modern-day Christians. And because of that, it was assumed that this is a command that we have to obey today. But if we understand Leviticus in its context and who it was written to, it completely changes the understanding of what's going on here. Because the problem is when we understand it in context, we see clearly that this command, as it says in Leviticus 23.10, was given directly to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel reaped the harvest, they were to bring the first fruits not to the church, not to uh, your local governing body or anything like that. They were to give it to the priest, the priest that worked within the temple. And, and just looking at this plainly in context, we can see that this was clearly written to a specific group of people at a specific time. It was not written for modern-day Christians to follow. And it's funny, though, because so anybody can cherry-pick a verse like this from the Old Testament and say that it applies to us, but they'll conveniently skip over text in the very same chapter that they would say don't apply to us. Because if you go just a few verses down in Leviticus 23, it talks about how Israel is, to, is supposed to sacrifice burnt offerings of lambs and rams and bulls. But I don't see any pastors today, after they talk about giving the first fruits and tithing, uh, continue on down to talk about how we should also sacrifice lambs, rams, and bulls. You can't, it, it's inconsistent to cherry pick what you want to apply and what you don't want to apply when you're pulling from an Old Testament text that was not written 
to modern-day Christians. Another example of this, in the very same chapter of Leviticus 23, this one, this one actually kind of had me laugh when I look into it. Look at verse 22 in Leviticus 23. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So this is funny because when people go to the text in Leviticus to say that this clearly teaches that Christians need to tithe, that they have to always give their first fruits of everything that they earn, They have to give it to the church. I never hear them talk about the verse just 12 verses later that commands that same people group to not harvest all of their land, but to leave portions of their land so that the poor and the immigrant can take from it and be sustained. I've never heard a sermon from any pastor that says, oh yes, not only do you have to give your first fruits, but you also have to make sure that you leave a decent amount in your bank account so that the poor and the immigrant can take your funds and be sustained from it. I've never heard that be preached, but it's in the same exact chapter. So why are we picking and choosing? Why are we picking the passage that talks about giving our first fruits to God so that we can then turn that into a message about us being blessed, but we're not talking about in applying and implementing the same chapter a few verses later that talks about leaving enough money from what we harvest so that the poor and the immigrant can be sustained. Do, do you see where I'm getting at here? When we don't understand the, the context of the Bible and who it was written to, what time it was written to them, and why it was written to them, we can inconsistently apply, misapply, ignore, and overfocus on parts of the Bible that simply were not written to us, but it can still be used for us to understand God's nature, understand what God wants from his people. And I say all of this to say, and trust me, we'll get into Romans 15. I say all of this to say two things. One, uh, I need to do an episode on tithing. <laughs> and I want to be very clear because anytime you get into these messages or discussions about tithing and that the Bible really doesn't teach that, new, that Christians have to tithe 10%, I want to be clear. This does not mean that we are not called to give generously. This does not mean that people who work in ministry, pastors, worship leaders, uh, helpers in the church, this does not mean that they are supposed to work for free. There are many instances within the New Testament even that talk about giving generously, giving more than you think you can, supporting those who cannot support themselves, giving funds to various ministries. I mean, we'll read this in Romans 15. Paul emphasizes how important it is to give to the saints at the church of Jerusalem. This is a, a precedent that we are supposed to give. We're supposed to want to be generous with the things that God has given us and bless others, but it's never commanded in the New Testament that Christians are supposed to give 10% at least of all of their earnings, even if it means that you give up that 10% and you can't eat. Yes, you're supposed to trust in God, but it's not 
a biblical command that you have to give 10% of your earnings. That's the first thing. Second thing is that the books and the letters of the Bible are written to specific groups of people with specific goals in mind. And because God is so great, people like us who are reading their mail and their letters 2,000 years later, we're still able to see God's character, God's love, and God's moral standards throughout it all. And we're able to see the story and the historical path that God took to redeem human beings from their sinful ways, to restore us to a new heaven and a new earth under our King Jesus. So I don't want us to think that because these are letters and writings that were written to other people, that we are not affected by it. We're completely affected and impacted by it. But we also need to respect the text and understand that in many cases, we're reading somebody else's mail. So when we get to a point like we are today in the letter to the Roman people, we really start to notice that we are reading someone else's mail. Uh, it, the, the first 14 or so chapters, I'd say 13 chapters uh, of Romans, you very well could read through it and assume that, for the most part, Paul was talking straight to you. You're like, man, Paul, this, this is fire. All these things. Yeah, you're right. I am a sinner. You know, why would I keep living in sin? I am a family of Abraham. You would get that. But once you get to the end of Romans 15 and going into 16, you start to realize like, oh, this, this is mail that I'm reading that Paul sent to somebody else because he gives a lot of really insightful details. So we're going to read through this here. Verse 22 through 33. We're going to get through Romans 15, y'all. We are on the move, like we always do. I'm going to read through it fully, then we're going to break it down verse by verse. Paul says, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered them to them what has been collected— I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. All right, we got a lot to cover, so let's not waste any time. Verse 22, let's get it. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So unfortunately, we started off in the middle of Paul's thoughts on where his priorities lie in regards to the locations of his preaching. 
A few verses back, and if you listened to the last episode, you'll know what I'm talking about here. Paul tells them in verse 20 that it is his ambition to preach the gospel, but not where Christ has already been named. And it is for this reason, this is why Paul has not yet physically visited the Roman church, is because he's been working in fulfilling his call to preach the good news throughout the areas that have not yet heard it. And I love Paul's determination to actually physically be present with them. Because technically, I mean, technically he sent a letter and, you know, taught them some good theology. You know, even his letter to the Roman church does not satisfy his desire to cover ground, if you will. And although his teaching is reaching Rome, and we'll learn about who delivers that letter next chapter, his physical presence is is still not there. And for Paul, that's not going to cut it. He wants to be with the people in Rome. And that is his hope, that once he heads off to Spain, on his way there, he can visit them. On to verse 25. He says, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So we we get a little insight to Paul's itinerary around this time of his ministry. He's out here going to Macedonia, Achaia. He, he's, he's making some ground. And what's interesting is that Paul is planning to bring an offering, to bring goods, money, material goods, to the saints at Jerusalem. And the people in Macedonia and Achaia have already given to the poor in the Jerusalem church. And we know from the New Testament writings themselves that this was rightfully needed. The Jerusalem church faced a lot of persecution. Barnes says this in his commentary regarding this. He says, quote, the Christians who were in Judea were exposed to special trials. They were condemned by the Sanhedrin, opposed by the rulers, and persecuted by the people. You see this in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, Acts chapter 12 verse 1. Paul sought not only to relieve them by this contribution, but also to promote fellow feeling between them and the Gentile Christians, end quote. So with this background context in mind, because remember, this is a letter, we're reading Paul's mail. With this background context in mind, it makes perfect sense why Paul would be collecting funds and material goods to bring to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And this takes me back to the original thought that we had at the beginning of this episode regarding the tithe and is this a universal duty for all Christians or is this just something that Paul needs these specific churches to do at a specific time? And we have to remember that these are letters. Paul is not writing this letter to the Roman people for us 2,000 years later but there still can be principles that are gleaned from it. So when it comes to this idea of giving to the church in Jerusalem, there are some churches out there who still send monetary blessings to the church in Jerusalem. And this is something that can happen if there is a thing that is commanded 
of a specific group of people in a specific context, if we're not careful, we can think that this applies to us. And this is why I really want us to understand and focus on the fact that we really need to take time to understand the best that we can, the details in the background context, to see if these commands also apply to us today. And a little hint, hint, we're not bound and commanded to give to the church in Jerusalem. If you want to, out of the kindness of your heart, you can, but this is clearly a call from Paul to specific groups of people for a specific need at that time in the church of Jerusalem. And often this this hermeneutic, if you will, this is lost in our Bible reading, in our application of Scripture today. One example of how a command in a letter to a specific group of people at a specific time can spark vast debates on its application and universal binding on Christians today is centered around the topic of women in ministry. And once again, I don't have a time to do a deep dive. I I definitely want to, and we will do that on a later episode. But I'll give you the gist of the basics of the arguments and the basics on the two sides, because this has been a debate for hundreds and hundreds of years. And some of the brightest minds in theology and scholarship have debated both sides of this argument, and it's still not settled. And it, this is a very, very sensitive subject. It's a very sensitive subject. But my focus is not to try and tell you what is the right option or the wrong option. What I want to focus on is, are we completely misapplying or misunderstanding topics like this because we're reading someone else's mail assuming that it was meant for us. That's the focus I want to have. But real quick, I'll give you the two camps when it comes to women in ministry. On the one side, you have typically what's called complementarians. And on the other side, you have what is called egalitarians. And for the most part, complementarians hold the view that the Bible has strict and clear commands that prohibit women from being pastors or teaching adult men or exercising authority over men when it comes to church and ministry along with very clear and distinct roles that a male has and a woman has within a marriage, within a family construct, within a culture. And egalitarians typically hold the view that is opposite of that, that women, all women can be pastors, they can all teach adult men, they can exercise authority over men, and uh, some branches of egalitarianism also hold that there are not distinct roles when it comes to a man and a woman, a husband and a wife within the, bro- the broader culture. And obviously, this is a very basic boiled down version. There are nuances on each side, and not every single person is the same. But obviously, both of these sides have various passages and verses and arguments and things that they will use to support their view. But one in particular, which is going to be the focus um, that we're going to be looking at today when it comes to understanding the context of a letter that was not written to us is found in 1 Corinthians 14. This is one of the most popular ones and the one that causes a lot of debate. 
says this in chapter in chapter 14, verse 23, As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Like I said, this verse is commonplace <laughs> for a discussion and disagreement for centuries and centuries. And if you're reading that along with me, or if you heard me read it out, you can understand why it would spark some debate. It's telling women, Paul is telling women that they're supposed to be silent in church. They're not permitted to speak. And in other passages, it says that they're not permitted to teach either. But the focus that we have today is the use and application that comes along with 1 Corinthians 14. Many Christians will read this verse, they'll apply it to our modern culture today, and they will go along with what it says and say, yes, women are supposed to stay silent during church. Women are not allowed to teach. And when you ask why, often the answer is, because the Bible said it, and I'm going to obey the Bible. And my one question would be this. Was this command meant for all people, for all time, and all cultures, no matter what? Did Paul really have in mind, when he is writing this letter to the Corinthian church, who has specific problems that Paul is addressing, did Paul really have in mind that he wanted this to be binding and he wanted this to apply to all people for the rest of human history? Or was Paul giving a specific command to a specific church with specific problems and specific people that are dealing with them? And if our answer is, um, Paul wanted this to apply for all people at all times. This is the word of God. This is what Paul commanded. And so this has to be a universal command for all people. Then my, my, my problem with this is that we run into a real problem with biblical consistency in how we apply the Bible and what we decide should be applied and what shouldn't be applied. Because if we take what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 and we say Paul wanted this to apply to all people, even those who were he never knew were going to read this letter, then what would we do with something like 1 Corinthians 11, just a few chapters before this, when Paul talks about the necessity for head coverings in the church? Look at this, verses 3 through 9. Paul says this, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Okay, so here in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is very, very clear that it is dishonorable for a man or woman to not wear the proper head coverings during worship. He makes it so clear that 
it is obvious that the women in the church at this time needed to wear hair, hair coverings. And if they didn't, it was a big problem. Paul is so clear about this that he even grounds his reasoning in the creation of man and woman in verse 8. But this is the problem when we try and pick and choose what we want to apply and assuming that these letters were meant to be written to us is that at least in Western cultures and Western churches, nobody is teaching that women have to wear head coverings in church. I have never been to a church in America where women are required to wear hair coverings and where women are required to either have their hair cut short if they don't wear head coverings. I've never seen it. And this is happening in the very same churches that will take 1 Corinthians 14 and say, see, Paul said that women need to be silent, that they can't teach, they can't do all of these things, but they need to submit. In the same exact churches. Do you see the inconsistency that comes with cherry-picking what we want to be universal and what we want to say is contextual or, oh, that was the culture at the time. Because if you ask somebody about this and say, hey, you think 1 Corinthians 14 is binding for all people, but I notice that you don't force your women to wear head coverings in church. Why not? Oftentimes the answer is, well, that was a cultural thing. That's what the women did back then is they wore head coverings and Paul wanted to keep that the same. But do, do, do we see the inconsistency? You can't say in one instance in a command that you necessarily don't want to follow that it's a cultural thing. But then a few chapters later say, no, 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 this wasn't cultural. This was universal and everybody always has to abide by it. I believe that a lot of this inconsistency when it comes to applying the scripture comes from a lack of understanding or a lack of recognition that these are letters that were not written to us. We're reading someone else's mail. And if we understand this, then we need to be very, very wise and seek the Holy Spirit's guidance when deciding what in these letters were meant just for the recipients of that letter and what in those letters were also meant for everybody to follow. One example of this, and I love this example because it really highlights the danger of reading someone else's mail and assuming that it applies to you without understanding any background that, that is going on. I tell this story of my girls going to stay the night with their grandma. I have two daughters. Right now, one is two and one is nine months. So they're not quite at the age where they can spend the night at someone else's house quite yet. But here in a few years, they will be. And imagine a scenario where I had the day off. It was a weekend. And me and my wife decided to take my girls out and just have a fun day. We went to the movies. We got to watch their favorite Disney princess movie. It was a few hours long. It was great. And while we were there, Oh my goodness, they ate so much popcorn, they had so much candy, we even let them have some soda. It was so much fun. And this was right before we were going to drop them off at grandma's house so me and my wife could go on a date. 
Now, the night before we had this super fun day, the girls really didn't want to go to sleep. They were fighting sleep. They were up so late. And because of that, the whole day during the fun day, they were running off of a few hours of sleep. So it comes time for grandma to watch them. And as we're leaving, right after we drop them off, we're, we're telling their grandma all about the day that they had, the movies that they got to watch, all the candy, how they stayed up late. Grandma is fully informed about the things that we did that day. So we're driving off. We're headed to our date. And I think, oh, man, I forgot to tell her some of the things that need to be done with the girls tonight. So I send her a text and I say, hey, grandma, I just want you to know that I do not allow the girls to have any candy tonight. Do not give them any candy. They're not allowed to have any candy. Also, they're not allowed to watch TV. And one more thing, they need to go to bed by 7 o'clock. I hit send. We have our date. The girls have a great rest of their night. And we go on with our lives. Now imagine, a few hundred thousand years later, somebody finds my phone. They're able to retrieve the text message, and for some reason, they deem me as a wise, important person that should be followed and listened to. And they read my message because they're looking up to me for guidance and understanding, and they see that I told somebody that my daughters are not allowed to have candy, they're not allowed to watch TV, and they're not allowed to stay up past seven. Now, how foolish would it be, and how wrongly applied would it be, if the people who grabbed my text message, who was reading my mail, then takes what I said and applies it to their family and then says that everybody else in their culture and everybody else in their surrounding state and country needs to follow these same exact rules because the wise man Dante said this long ago. Well, since we know the background information, we understand that this would be really foolish because I only gave those specific instructions without extra background context because there were things that went without being said because the writer of the letter, myself, and the recipient of the letter, which was grandma, already knew the backstory in regards to the things that I was telling her. It didn't need to be explained. And because people who were reading my mail didn't understand that this was only commands for two specific little girls for one specific night because of very specific things that went on that day. They have now wrongly applied something that I didn't even write to them. However, though, this doesn't mean that that text message or that wisdom, if you will, couldn't be used for them. They could look and go, if they knew the background information, they could look and go, oh, well, I guess if we have a day where my children watch a lot of TV and eat a lot of sweets and stay up really late the night before, then maybe it is a good thing to keep them from candy and not allow them to watch TV and get them in bed by 7 o'clock on those specific nights. But, but all of this is what we can fall into reading New Testament letters if we try and universally apply commands that weren't written to us. And here in Romans, in Romans 15, is a perfect example. Going back to verse 27 and the offering that was supposed to be given to the Jerusalem church, Paul says very clearly, if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, 
they ought to also be a service to them, the Jerusalem church, and material blessings. Paul's very clear that Gentiles, which, unless you're a Jew, then like me, you would be a Gentile. And it is true that we have shared in their spiritual blessing. Does that mean that now we have to give offerings to the saints in Jerusalem? If we improperly assume that this letter was written to us, then we would be obliged to send offerings to the church in Jerusalem. But since we know that Paul is writing this request to the Roman church 2,000 years ago, we can understand that we are not held under biblical obligation to tithe to the Jerusalem church, but we can still glean good principles from this, that it is good if we are gaining something from a ministry or from someone who is being a pastor or teaching, we can glean that we should support them financially to a degree. If we are getting something from them, Paul is clear, you've shared in their spiritual blessings. Don't you think that you should give back to them as well? Paul's not saying that if you're in ministry, you need to be poor, that if you're running a church that your congregation just needs to come on Sundays and get a sermon, make them feel good and leave and you stay broke. Paul's not saying that, but we understand that because we know that this is a specific letter to specific people. I probably need to do an episode in the future exploring this idea more thoroughly because it was hard for me to change my paradigm that the Bible wasn't written to me, but it was written for me. And there's a ton of things that directly relate to me and that can be meant for me, but there also are some things that are not meant for me. Think back to the sacrificial laws in the Old Testament. I'm not supposed to follow those because that was not written to me. It was written to somebody else. On to verse 28. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you. Amen. So Paul has just given us some really awesome context into his life, into the situation that's going on here. Uh, Paul has a jam-packed calendar. Paul is planning on leading many more people to Christ when he's writing this letter. But, but when he does, he, it's interesting that he also speaks of the potential dangers and the potential, prom, the potential problems that a former persecutor turned Jesus freak would potentially face. And that is the problem of facing hatred and persecution. That's why he asks them to pray that he may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. It is very clear that Paul understands the potential violence that will come his way because he is preaching the gospel there. But all that aside, Paul's main focus at the end of this chapter really goes back to what he stated in verse 21, that his focus is to make sure that those who have never been told of him We'll see, and those who have never heard will understand. 
And next week, starting chapter 16, we'll take a look at the people who helped Paul accomplish that goal.